so grateful, so grateful that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus for us. That we know that just as death could not contain him and he now lives forever, that we can have eternal life in him as well. We praise you for that, God. We pray that you would give us wisdom and insight now into your word as we look into it, as it talks about what's to come for all humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We Minnesotans talk about the weather a lot. Have you noticed that? And, and we have good reason for it. I mean, the weather is important. Um, have any of you seen this book here? It's called How to Talk Minnesotan, A Visitor's Guide uh, by Howard Moore. There's also a really funny internet video on it. You can Google the How to Talk Minnesotan. I think it's like a 24-minute video. It's well worth your time. The book is pretty good as well. Um, but in there, Howard Moore, in the book, he says, if you are called upon to start a conversation from a dead stop in Minnesota, which to us Scandinavians, that can be a, a terrifying thing, right? You have to start a conversation with somebody. Well, he goes on to say, you should know that 35% of our conversations deal with the weather, 30% with cars, 15% with food. I think that should be a little higher maybe, but uh, 10% with road and building construction, 9% with fishing, 1% with politics and religion, and 1% with the rest. Now, I think that adds up to 101%, but uh, maybe that's Minnesota math. I don't know what that is. But. but you see, the weather is important to us, so we talk about it a lot. It's important to us because we have to figure out when it's safe to put our winter jackets away. In fact, I think it was just about three weeks ago or so that I put my winter jacket away. Uh, but there's another really important reason in Minnesota that we talk about the weather a lot. Farming. Now, how many of you here either grew up on a farm or have close relatives that farm? I'll raise my hand for that one. Both sets of grandparents. That's almost everybody in here. And so when we think about it, the reason we talk about the weather so much is because it's really important for the farmers to know when it's going to be right for them to plant. And then also that really important time at the end when it's going to be right to harvest. So we have good reason we're talking about the weather. It's not just a conversation starter always. Sometimes it's very important. But you see, there's also a really important harvest coming in the future that the Bible talks about. In fact, like my sermon title says today, there are two harvests that are coming. So it's a biblical thing to talk about the harvest. But as we look at Revelation 14, these last seven verses of it, we will see that the harvest that we're talking about is not a harvest of crops, it's a harvest of people. And like I said, I think we see two of these harvests. So what we're going to do today is I want to explain to you uh, what these two harvests mean in Revelation 14. And for those of you that are just joining us, we are walking through the book of Revelation. We started in January, and we're going to go until we're done with the book, unless Jesus comes first. You know, that's, that's our plan here, is that we'll go through Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we've been seeing how it's really important for us to know Jesus. And, and that couldn't come out any clearer today in our passage. So let's read our passage, Revelation 14, and I'll start with verse 14 and read to the end. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, which my footnote says is about 180 miles. I see in this passage two different harvests with two very different purposes. Now, just to be fair, there are a fair amount of theologians out there who see these two harvests as having the same purpose. Some theologians see these, both of these harvests being for the wicked, that they're, they're both brought in for judgment. But I disagree with that, and there are a lot of theologians that disagree as well, and we're just going to take this view now. Um, I see the first harvest as a harvest of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and will be brought to God. They will be harvested to live with God forever. And then the second harvest is that judgment for the wicked. And let me just, before we jump into the passage today, let me explain why I see it that way. First of all, the Bible often talks about a harvest of people. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's this repeated metaphor of a great harvest for the wicked. So at least four times in the Old Testament, we see the harvest of the wicked spoken of as the grapes being gathered to be trampled on. But in the New Testament, as I'm sure many of you know, you could come up with passages probably just off the top of your head that speak of the harvest in a positive light. For example, that's why Jesus told us that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Which, by the way, are you doing that? Jesus told us that the, the harvest is ripe and that, that there should be more workers sent out. And what did Jesus tell us to do about it? He told us to pray that God would send more out. And, and I, I hope that that's what we're doing as a congregation, that we're praying for that kind of thing. Look also what Jesus said in John 4, 35 to 36. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So I put that verse up there just to show you that that is a very positive harvest there. Jesus is saying that the harvest is ripe and that he who harvests the crop harvests it for eternal life. So it's positive imagery about a harvest. But perhaps even more telling, there are places in the New Testament where it speaks of two harvests together, one positive and one negative, one for salvation and one for wrath. So what I want to do now is I want to put up a chart to help you understand this. On this chart, we're going to look at three passages. And there are two categories here. There's one for salvation and one for wrath. So before we get into Revelation 14, I want to show you two other places in the New Testament that have this, and then we'll do Revelation 14. So first of all, Matthew 3, verses 11b through 12. This is John the Baptist speaking about the ministry of Jesus. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering, up, uh, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in those verses, the wheat will be brought into the barn, and that symbolizes salvation. But the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, 
symbolizing wrath. So let's put Matthew 3 up there where the wheat is for salvation and the chaff is burned as a symbol of wrath. And then let's look at a parable from Jesus in Matthew 13. Jesus gave this parable and then after a little while he went back with his disciples and his disciples as often kind of pulled Jesus aside and said, Jesus, uh, we didn't quite get that one. Would you explain it to us? And he did. So I want to read for you both the parable and the explanation of the parable from Matthew 13. We'll start in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So let's go on now to read the explanation of this. In verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So I hope you get it now in this parable. The wheat represents God's people, and God's plan is to harvest his people and bring us to be with him forever. But the enemy came and sowed weeds, and those weeds are the sons of the evil one. They will be pulled up and burned. So let's put up our chart again. In Matthew 13, then, we see that wheat symbolizes salvation and weeds symbolize wrath. And those weeds will be burned and in there it says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And let me say one quick side note now about Matthew 13 before we move on. I like in that parable that God has a plan for the wicked. Remember when they asked him, uh, should we pull up the weeds now? And God's response was, no, let them grow, and I'll take care of them at the harvest. You see, I think that there are some people who forget that God has a plan for the wicked. We see wicked people around, you turn on the news, or even just around you in daily life, perhaps we see wicked people doing wicked things. Please know that God has a plan. He will take care of them. Now, other people assume it's their job to take care of the wicked. And I think that that's why we see people like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. They think it's their job to root out the weeds ahead of time. But in Matthew 13, we see clearly that God has a plan. He will take the righteous to be with him, and the wicked will receive their punishment. Our job is to be faithful and to wait for God to judge. Okay? We can take comfort in that. We, we all see the wickedness of the world, but take comfort. God has a plan. Okay, but let's move on now to Revelation 14 and the two harvests. And again, I see two different harvests here, just like we saw in Matthew 3 and Matthew 13. And one of the reasons why I see two harvests for two different purposes in Revelation 14 is that there are two different words for the word ripe. 
in, in verse 15 and in verse 18. In verse 15, the word ripe means dry. Now, that's how you determine when it's time to harvest grain, when it's dry. Now, I didn't know this for sure, so I had to call, you know, phone a friend this week. I called my dad, who knows a lot more about farming than I do. And he said, yes, indeed, today what farmers will do with a, a crop of grain is that they'll actually take the combine out when they think it might be time to harvest, and they'll harvest just a little bit of it, and they will then take that sample and run a moisture test on it. And if the moisture content is low enough, that is, if the grain is dry enough, then they will harvest the rest of the crop. So this word dry here, I think, implies a harvest of some sort of grain. We'll, and we'll just use the word grain here as a kind of a general term. It could be wheat, it could be barley, wh whatever. But I, I believe that in Revelation 14 that this symbolizes salvation, just like in Matthew 3 and in Matthew 13. It's this word picture of God bringing his people to be with him forever. But then we move ahead to verse 18 and we see the word ripe. And it's a different word. Even though in English it looks like the same word in Greek, it's a different word. And I'm no grape farmer either, but I assume that when you're picking grapes, you don't want to wait to pick them until they're dry. That you pick them when they're juicy. So in verse 18, what we see here is a harvest of grapes. And we see, I'll put this up here, that these grapes are to be trampled. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But that's a symbol of wrath. So now we've filled in this entire chart, and I just want you to take a look at it, and I think that there are two things that are abundantly obvious from this chart. Number one, all of humanity is heading to one of these two places, either to salvation or to wrath. And then number two, it should be obvious to you which one you want to be in. There's only two harvests, and I don't want to be burned or trampled. I would rather be brought to be with God forever. Okay, so let's now quickly take a look at these two harvests. We'll put verse 14 up on the screen here, and in that verse we read of one like a son of man, seated on a white cloud, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now there's some debate here as to whether this person is Jesus or not, but to me it just looks so much like Jesus that that's what I'm going with. Uh, it's the same phrase, like a son of man, as was used in Revelation 1.13, and there it goes on to tell us unquestionably that it's Jesus. Also, it's fulfilling prophecy from Daniel 7.13. In, in Daniel 7, we were told of one like a son of man who was coming on the clouds of heaven. And in the very next verse, it says that he... Uh, I'll read it for you. Um, All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Which, let me just take a quick side trip here and talk about worship. I've, I've been going with this idea that worship is perhaps the main theme of the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons that it's so is because God is worthy of worship, but another reason that it's so is because we learned in last, last week, in uh, chapter 14, the first part of it, that it's those who worship Jesus that will get to be with him forever, and it's those who worship the beast that will be sent away forever. So worship is a really important deal. And I just want to ask you, as I asked you last Sunday, have you been worshiping God this week? Have you been making sure to do your life with God and for God? I hope so. God is worthy of worship, not just on Sunday mornings, but always. So again, I think this is Jesus in verse 14, and then as we move into verse 15, an angel comes and tells Jesus to take his sickle and to reap. Um, now, some people question whether an angel has the authority to command Jesus, but here, just a little pop quiz for you. What does the word angel mean? 
Messenger. Good. Some of you have been listening. All right. I, I think I told that a couple of times recently. So the word angel means messenger, and some of you probably knew that for before I was born even. But um, So an angel comes with a message from God, and it's, it's no stretch of the imagination then to think that Jesus should obey the command that comes from God, even if it comes through an angel. And then in verse 16, we just see what happens here, that he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So again, I believe that this first harvest symbolizes people who have faith in Jesus and are harvested to be with God forever. But it brings up an interesting question, because in chapter 14, we had already seen 144,000 who were with Jesus. And as I told you last Sunday, I think that that might be representative of of the entirety of believers. So who then are these people that were left for the harvest? Well, that's an interesting point. Because do you remember what happened after we saw this group of 144,000 with Jesus? In chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, we saw an angel coming, and from midair, he proclaimed the eternal gospel to the people of earth. So, if I'm understanding it rightly, the 144,000 were already with Jesus, and then the angel came and proclaimed the gospel to the people who were left on earth, and some of them responded in faith to that gospel. Remember what the angel told them to do? To fear God, to give him glory, and to worship him. And apparently, some of the people of the earth listened. And, And I see good news in that. I see God looking down at earth, recognizing that there's a bunch of sinners on earth, but in love, bringing his gospel message to them. And some of the people, we're told here in the end, will respond with faith in Jesus Christ. They will be saved, they will be harvested to be with God forever. And this group very likely includes that people up until that time, up until the time when the angel proclaimed the gospel, they had been rejecting God. They had walked away from him. But even still, God had mercy. And that's that's part and parcel of the gospel message. God's mercy on sinners like you and me. God's mercy on people who had turned their backs on him. But what about those then who continue to reject the gospel? Well, those are the people that we see in the harvest of grapes in verses 17 through 20. And in verse 17, another angel comes out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And then in verse 18, still another angel came out. Came out. This angel had charge of the fire, and he comes from the altar and tells the angel of verse 17 to harvest the grapes because they are ripe. Now, it's important to note that both of these angels come out from the temple or from the altar. And it's important to note that because that's where God dwells. What we're going to see here in these next verses is terrible wrath. In fact, the way that I understand Revelation, I think that this part of Revelation kind of sets the stage for the next six chapters of wrath that we're going to see. But what's important to remember is that all of this wrath comes out from where God dwells. This is no mere human wrath. This is not like maybe you and I have done too many times in our lives where somebody did something wrong to us and in anger we lashed out in wrath. No, this is the patient, holy God. And I want you to think about God's patience for a moment. We have not yet come to this point in world history. We have not yet come to the time where the grapes are gathered and trampled in the wine press. That will come later But for thousands of years, God has watched the sins of earth pile. How many sins do you think God has taken note of over the millennia? 
God is patient. And it tells us that, that God is patient with us because he wants us to come to repentance. So the fact that we are not in a wine press right now being trampled by Jesus is because God is patient and merciful and he wants the lost to come to know him. But there is punishment. And what we see here is terrible punishment. God has seen all this sin piling up and the wicked eventually will get their just rewards. And I call it just because it's coming from a just God. The theologian Robert Mounts says, judgment upon sin is a necessary function of righteousness. Think about that. God is holy and righteous. And because he is righteous, he will not simply look at sin and say, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. God won't do that. Sin must be punished. And here, for those who reject Jesus, their punishment falls squarely on them. And as we go on in verses 19 and 20, we see the outcome of that punishment where the grapes are picked and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And again, this is God's wrath. This is not human wrath. This is the wrath of God. And in verse 20 there, it says that they were trampled in the winepress. And just to be clear that we're not really talking about grapes here, it uses the word blood. It says there in verse 20, blood flowed out of the press. And it's a lot of blood, an unimaginable amount of blood, rising as high as the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. And perhaps that's exaggeration to make a point, or perhaps it's there to remind us of how much wickedness there is and of how the punishment will be very severe. Now, it's interesting to me, this, this scene that we see right here is so gruesome, yet it has been made famous in a song that probably a bunch of you know. You know the song, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah, uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I want to read for you the first verse of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I'm going to read it, I'm not going to sing it. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Uh, I think that song was written during the Civil War as people saw bloodshed, and it reminded them of the bloodshed to come in the future. But please know this about the one that's coming in the future. It is from God. It is his judgment. In fact, in Revelation 19.15, it is Jesus who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's what makes this judgment so terrible. It comes from God's temple, and it is God himself who brings this judgment on the wicked, on those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ. Those who reject Jesus will suffer, as it says in verse 20, outside the city. I want to put that back up. In verse 20, you see, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. To close out my sermon today, I want to focus in on that phrase, outside the city. Every theologian that I read this week and every Bible that I saw that has cross-references to other parts of the Bible, they mention Hebrews 13:12 as they see that phrase, outside the city. And I want to put up for you Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So in Hebrews, it talks about the bodies of the sin offerings being burned outside the camp. The camp refers to the place where God dwells with his people. It's an Old Testament term. 
In fact, I want to show you something about the Bible, and, it, and it's okay if you kids out there want to laugh at this. I'm giving you permission. You adults will probably be too modest to laugh at this, but uh, I'm giving you, you kids permission to laugh at this. It's from Deuteronomy 23, where God told his people how to stay pure in the camp. I want to read for you verses 12 through 14. God told them. This is, this is God telling the people what they're supposed to do. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. What's he talking about? He's talking about going to the bathroom. Um, as part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. And listen to this part. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything undecent and turn away from you. So do you get what's going on there? God dwells in the camp with his people. And he doesn't want anything unclean to be inside the camp, so he asks them to go outside the camp to do their unclean thing. That's why, if we go back to Hebrews 13, verse 11, that the bodies of the sin offerings were burned outside the camp. Those bodies of the sin offerings came to symbolize the uncleanness of the people, and the bodies were taken outside the camp to be burned. But then in Hebrews 13, we also see amazingly that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. So the, the idea of the, the camp has now been translated into the city, and it says that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. That's where he was crucified. And this is amazing, because Jesus, who never did anything wrong, who was completely unblemished and blameless and clean, took our sin upon himself. He took our unholiness on himself and died for us outside the city gate. So there's a wonderful offer of life in here. If we trust in Jesus, our sins are taken care of through his life, his death, and his resurrection. But if you reject Jesus, then your sin remains on yourself. And since God will not allow any sin in his presence, and since he is just, that's why it says in Revelation that the wicked will be trampled outside the city. So do you get this idea here? Sin has to be taken care of outside the city. But there's good news in the gospel. Jesus already did that for you. So again, think of it. Your sin has to be taken care of outside the city. There are only two options for you then. Either you trust in Jesus, meaning that your sins are placed on him, and his death outside the city pays for your sins, or you will be collected like grapes in the end times and thrown into the wine press and trampled on. There are only two options. I hope you saw that from the chart that I put up. I hope you saw it as we walked through scripture. There are two harvests. One for salvation and one for wrath. In his holiness, God offers mercy to those who receive Jesus, but he also warns of his wrath to those who reject him. And, and think about that. God is holy. And on our own, we are not holy. But in his mercy, we can be made holy. Look at Hebrews thirteen twelve again. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy. Let that sink in. To make the people holy through his own blood. Through what Jesus did for us, we are made holy. 
You see, God will not make a mockery out of justice. God will not let people who are still clinging to their sins into heaven with him. Now, your sins can be forgiven in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. But that's your only chance at holiness. And if you reject Jesus, your sin remains on you. And there's nothing but punishment and wrath. So which harvest will you be part of? Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? We talk about those two words a lot here. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Real quickly, for him to be Savior means that we recognize that we are sinners, that on our own we are not holy, and that we need Jesus' blood to cleanse us, and that we go to God and say, would you please forgive me? I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. And we thank Jesus for being our Savior, and we receive him. But we also receive him as Lord. And the word Lord means God, but it also means Master. And it means that we give our lives to Jesus, to follow him, that he is in control. That, that we give up this pretense of being in control of our own lives, and we submit humbly to Jesus, and we give our lives to him. He is Lord, and we are his followers who humbly submit and serve and follow and walk with him. So have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If not, I just want to urge you to talk to God right now and do it. But then I have one more question as I finish out my sermon. What about those around you? What harvest will they be part of? Now, if I'm understanding Revelation 14 rightly, the angel will come at the end times and proclaim the eternal gospel to the people of the earth, and some of them will receive the gospel and receive salvation. But we don't have to wait until the end to share the gospel. God has given us mouths and he's told us the words of his gospel message, and we can bring that to the people around us. So will you pray? Will you tell God that you will join with him in proclaiming the gospel? Will you give of yourself and let God know that he can use you to talk to your family and your friends and those around you, your neighbors, your co-workers? Would you please pray for them as well? Would you pray that their hearts would be drawn to God? Would you pray that doors would be open for you to bring the gospel to them? Would you pray that when those doors are open, that words would be given you to say, like the Apostle Paul prays, that we might proclaim the gospel fearlessly and clearly as we should? And would you pray for us as a church that we would shine as a light, that we would bring the gospel to the people around us? And then there's a whole bunch of other people you can be praying for too. Missionaries. Like I said recently, I hope that you're all regularly praying for missionaries. Pray that they would have great fruit in sharing the gospel. Pray for other churches. Let's be praying that we would do our part to bring the gospel to people. That they might have salvation instead of wrath. In his mercy, God has given us this message. Let's embrace it and let's proclaim it to others because... We should have a passion to know Christ and we are commissioned to make him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you that it's salvation for us, that we can escape wrath. Even though in our sin we deserved that, in your mercy you brought Jesus that we might have salvation. So we pray if there are any in here who have not yet received Jesus, that they would receive him right now as Savior and Lord. That they would recognize 
their need for a Savior and confess Jesus as Lord, as Master. And then, God, we pray that you would strengthen us to proclaim the gospel to those around us. I pray for us individually as we interact with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, or, or even just people that we've just come to know. Help us to proclaim your gospel to them. Would you please open the doors and strengthen us? Give us the words to say. We pray that they would have salvation through faith in Christ. And then we pray for us as a church as we think about an evening worship service coming up, as we think about other opportunities we'll have, we pray that your gospel message would, would ring forth clearly. And we pray that all over the world your gospel would go forth, that the lost would come to know Jesus, that they would recognize he is our only hope of being made holy. But again, God, we praise you that this salvation has come to us through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross and rising again victorious that we might have life. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.